Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. This is our penultimate London Film Festival wrap-up episode, and it's a bumper one. We review the new Benedict Cumberbatch film, The Power of the Dog, the Cannes award-winning and hard-hitting drama, Nitram, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter, starring Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley, Dashcam, the outrageous new horror movie from Rob Savage, who splashed onto the scene last year with the excellent Frightener host. We also review Terence Davis' new movie, Benediction, starring Jack Loudon and Peter Capaldi. Petite Maman, directed by Celine Sciamma, who previously made Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Paul Verhoeven's wonderful nunsploitation movie, Benedetta. And finally, King Richard, the film about Serena and Venus Williams' father that we think is going to nab Will Smith, the Best Actor Oscar. Oh, and we also give a quick review of Halloween Kills. Spoiler, it's total rubbish. So, it's a bumper episode then, and a mixed bag. We hope you enjoy, and we'll see you next time for the final LFF instalment, in which we'll look at Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. On with the show. What's going on? Everybody okay? They got a call, said there was trouble in the house. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you all need to look around. It's a little wet for practice, don't you think? Don't the girls have schoolwork to do? They do their homework. Tundi's first in her class. Lynn and Isha are too. Now I need mind you saying we hard on these kids. You know why? Because we are. That's our job, to keep them off these streets. You want to check on the kids? Let's check on the kids. We got future doctors and lawyers, plus a couple tennis stars in this house. The chances of achieving the kind of success that you're talking about is just very, very unlikely. Okay, you're making a mistake, but I'm going to let you make it. Watch me hit a few balls. All right. So tell me your names again. I'm Venus. I'm Serena. So what do you think? Hello. So, uh, well, it's got a bit of noise in now, hasn't it? So this is Monday the... Is it the 11th today? Yes, it's the 11th of um, October today. It's been a, a long few days. Yeah, so it's all got a bit noisy now because we are in the Royal Festival Hall. I'm trying to do a little bit of background noise reduction on this, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I think we're going to accidentally record a murder plot happening. Anyway, so we're going to accidentally the conversation it. We are going to accidentally the conversation this, that's right. So, yes, but we'll see how this one comes out. Cool, okay, then let's get on to Power of the Dog. So what is the story of The Power of the Dog? Power of the Dog is another Netflix Western, but this one directed by Jane Campion. Uh, In her first film since, I think it was 2008... No, 2000... It's her first film since Bright Star, the Ben Whishaw Keats film. Yes, which I think was either 2008 or 2009, so... It's been over 10 years since she made a film, which I didn't actually realise until you told me. Yeah, this is a western star, uh, based on a novel, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, and Cody Smith McPhee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, uh, so it's a really good cast. Yes, what's the basic premise of the story? Uh, the basic premise is that Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons play brothers. 
and uh, when Jesse Plemons gets married and brings home his wife and her son, essentially the uh, place explores the power dynamic of this new situation. I think I'm right in saying that this was the first film of the festival so far that we both thought was great. Yeah. <laughs> How did you describe it? I think you described it as very well put together, and it is. It's a really... It's, compo- it's composed... Yeah, it's a really artisanal western. It's um, it doesn't try to revise the genre. It's just a very well told story with amazing cinematography and great performances and the character beats that go in directions that you're not expecting. Yeah, so the cast are great. Benedict Cumberbatch, probably the lead, yeah. there or thereabouts. He plays this kind of cowboy who really resents his brother and resents this woman that he's brought in and is determined to bring her down make life unpleasant for her and he play, he's got this sort of real seething resentment to him he's clearly somebody who's intelligent as you know I don't think Benedict Cumberbatch I'd love to see Benedict Cumberbatch in a Dumb and Dumber movie I'd love to yeah, see him play a character who's not the smartest person in the room but. Just, I, I literally can't imagine that I can't imagine how he would play stupid because it would clearly be a very intelligent person trying to play stupid I just don't think he would know... Has he seen Stupid before? I mean, like, you know, or would he just be like trying to imagine what it's like from being told what it's like? Yeah, so it would be very interesting to see him try and do a Dumb and Dumber movie. I would definitely watch that. He's very good, and he, yeah, he plays the, uh, the brother to Jesse Clemens, who's this kind of redoubtable, sort of just very solid, very, you know, not hugely communicative, and he's married to a Kirsten Dunbar in real life and in the film. And she has a bit of a kind of a breakdown when, you know, being confronted by high society. Previously, she's run a guest house. And it's a real, you know, sort of change of pace for her. And then you've got Cody Smith-McPhee, who uh, was in a Western in about 2015. And he was in Slow West yeah. with Michael Fassbender, to whom Benedict Cumberbatch bears a marked resemblance in this film. He does. And he also kind of reminds me of Daniel Day-Lewis in this as well. There's a, there's a touch of Daniel Day-Lewis from There Will Be Blood, but... One of the interesting things I thought about this film was that I thought that the Phil character played by Cumberbatch was going to really go full Daniel Day-Lewis and Nelby Blood. And I liked the fact that that wasn't the story that this was going to tell. It was a different story being told. Yeah, it's an ensemble piece. And even though Phil is kind of the de facto antagonist, his relationship with the other characters is more complex than that, especially after a certain point when it comes to the Cody Smith McPhee character. And he plays... He plays Peter. Yes, he plays Peter, the son. He's an interesting actor. He's sort of very gangly and slightly awkward. Um, but he's got he's got a certain self-possessing quality to him. Yeah. And Phil kind of takes him under his wing and is very surprised to discover that there's they have more in common than he might have initially thought. Yeah, it's interesting because... Um... Yeah, not going to give too much away about the character journeys and the different power dynamics in the film. But yeah, Peter is the son of Rose, the Kirsten Dunst character. So there are reasons why Phil wants to get Peter on side. But the thing that really, really surprised me about it was the way that the characters were kind of peeled back like an onion. Because one of the great things about the Peter character is that he's very clever himself, but also shrieks a lot when he's a bit nervous there's a bit when he's trying to ride a horse and the horse is kind of a trot that's not quite a gallop but he he does let out some yelps doesn't he as he's kind of like a little bit worried about what might happen and I just thought that was like an interesting little character piece you see yeah the performances all around are great 
it's a very understated film. I mean, it's a western, but it's about as far away as we can imagine from the harder they fall. There are not really any guns in it. I can't remember. The closest I think you get to a weapon in it is a banjo. Yeah, that's right. There's a very, very good bit with a weaponized banjo. But also, it's, it's as far away as you can get from the Old West and still be in the Old West, because, of course, it's set in 1925. So electricity has come. It's all set in Montana, in the mountains of Montana, and they live in this very, very remote, large ranch house. But it does have electricity, so power has reached them. And they have an automobile as well that they drive through the winding mountain roads. And I've never seen Western landscapes with an automobile in it like that. And so there were fresh touches that Campion was bringing to the film that I thought were really quite impressive. And the, the film was actually shot in New Zealand... I completely bought that it was Montana, so it was really surprising when you said, yeah, it was actually shot in the South Island, was it? Yes, and cinematographer was Ari Wagner. Some amazing nature in that, as you'd expect for New Zealand. You know, there's, there's a scene where they're driving the cattle across the plain, there's low cloud and the sun's glowing underneath it, and it's like, it's absolutely gorgeous. And a score by Johnny Greenwood, the second that we've heard this festival. Yeah, so the first one was from Spencer, which is a good score. This one... It's interesting because I was watching it thinking this kind of reminds me of the score from There Will Be Blood. But because we'd already seen a film with a Johnny Greenwood score in it this year at the festival, I didn't think that he'd done two in one year. So it was no surprise to see his name at the end of the film. It was like, oh, that makes complete sense that that was a Johnny Greenwood score because it sounded like his score from There Will Be Blood. So what did um, Ari Wenger do, the uh, cinematographer? Zola, which I saw earlier in the year, which is great, could make my top ten. True History of the Kelly Gang. Okay. Right, so which looks astonishing, which again, I think that was my pick of the year for cinematography. Oh, okay, right, cool, yes. Because there are some sequences in there, like riding through the forest and, and uh, the shootout, the climactic shootout in the dark. Yeah, great. Uh, in Fabric. Well, that was a very good looking film as well. Peter Strickland's film, yeah. And Lady Macbeth. Excellent. Okay, so. Um... I don't think there's anything else to say about the power of the dog. It's just a very, very well-told story. It looks gorgeous, is well-acted, has some real surprises in it. It's interesting in that it's... I was watching it thinking, I think this is going to be a 12. It's a film that has an atmosphere of dread, and it seems to have quite a violent atmosphere. But there's no real violence in it. So I think it's going to be a 12. I don't think there's anything in there that's going to push it to a 15 at all. So there's a gelding, isn't there? But I'm thinking, well, that seems to be done for real and it's just one of those it's just part of farm life so I think that's going to be fine Hello and it is now Friday the 15th of October and we are outside the Prince Charles cinema again and we're going to talk about some more LFF films we're almost at the end Rob yeah just one more to go yeah one more film to go uh, and one more day to go so that is of course The Tragedy of Macbeth which is on Sunday so we'll give you our thoughts after that and quickly, we've just endured Halloween Kills. Do you want to give literally a one-sentence review of that film? Um, franchise Dies Tonight. <laughs> franchise Dies Tonight, which is a very, very clever and funny paraphrase of a really shit piece of dialogue that they just keep insisting on saying throughout the whole film. Franchise Dies Tonight is being very nice. I thought it was a piece of shit. So, yeah, Halloween Kills, do not see it. It's rubbish particularly as the 2018 kind of sequel reboot was, I thought, really good. Anyway, we're going to talk today about a few films, so we're going to talk about, first of all, Nitram. Is that what we've set on? We've set on Nitram. It's definitely Nitram. Well, that's what they say in the film, isn't it? Nitram. Yeah, that's true. That's Because we were thinking, is it Nitram? Is it Nitram? It's actually Nitram. 
which is Martin backwards. I think we have to go with what they say in the film, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> You're looking like you don't quite believe that. I mean, yes, it is. Well, let's get into that now, I guess. Yeah, why, why he's called Nitram is because it's the reverse name of the actual real-life person on whom Nitram is based. The Earth. Yeah, so it's based on the tragedy in Port Arthur, Tasmania in 1996 when a man called Martin Bryant, who was disturbed, had learning difficulties, was uh, very easily able to arm himself with automatic weapons and massacred a lot of people. 35 people. And did he injure 23 more, I think it was? Yes, and then was involved in a hostage situation and stuff that I think you and I when we walked out of this we heard somebody saying that was at best uninsightful and worst irresponsible which I don't agree with I don't think no I don't agree with that it's one of those I have to admit I'm always a bit wary when we get these films that are based on real life mass shootings because you do kind of think is it going to be sensitively handled the families and loved ones are going to watch this how are they going to react to the fact that this has been dramatised is it going to take a creative license that misrepresents the perpetrator of the massacre? Is it going to try and steer you to understand their psychology in a way that isn't actually accurate? From what I read afterwards, it actually seems that Nitram did a very good job of depicting this guy's life without trying to steer you down any avenue that would demonise mental illness or that would give easy answers, but did seem to present community that missed a lot of red flags that were going up and allowed him to arm himself very, very easily. Yes, and also a community that wasn't able to deal with... I mean, you, you've got his parents, who are... Sorry, his being Nitram, who's played by um, Caleb Landry-Jones. Yeah, so Caleb Landry-Jones, who won... Uh, won uh, Best Actor at Cannes. That's right, yeah. And, yeah, previously you might know... He's probably best known for maybe three billboards... Still, I guess that's probably. I think so, yeah. And it was in the Divergent series or something like that. Anyway, yeah, he was very good in Three Billboards. I, for some reason, thought he was an Aussie actor who just did very good American accents. It was only when I was writing up this film that I realised he's an American actor who's very good at Aussie accents. Yeah, and it's like. He's completely convincing with it. And yeah, essentially, this guy who's a bit disturbed lives with his parents who are played by Anthony LaPaglia and Judy Davis Judy Davis and essentially they're at the end of their tether like he does stuff like disrupting the neighbourhood with using firecrackers he's just impulsive and violent not towards anyone in particular you get the impression but they're kind of at the end of their tether he's on medication the health service isn't really equipped to deal with it but essentially he meets and kind of strikes up a relationship with uh, Helen yes who's played by S.C. Davis, who we know from The Babadook and the true history of the Kelly Gang. I think she's actually married to the director of Nitram, Justin Kurzel. Yes, and essentially it's an interestingly structured film in terms of it does essentially follow the real history of the events as they happened. And there is a real sense of dread that goes through it because, you know, I think most people going will have some idea of the Port Arthur Massacre. But it sets up a lot of characters in it who you think, are these going to be victims? Are these going to be... And it's a film that doesn't, you know, sort of just dismiss and say, okay, he's just pure evil. But it's a film that also, like, applies a psychology term where you it explains without sort of justifying in any way. Because the, the danger is when you explain, you explain away. Yeah. And 
I think the performances are very good. It's all sort of shot almost verite style or like handheld. I found it really compelling. It definitely has a documentary feel to it, which is one of those things, again, when afterwards I thought, I think I like that, I think I can trust what it was doing, but I did need to go and read the Wikipedia stuff afterwards just to see if it embellished anything, and it didn't. I mean, it was one of those... What it actually does is... Um, it's more, it removes a couple of things. It does, yeah. So Helen, in real life, had a mother that lived with them because Nitram moves into Helen's very, very large house. She's a lottery heiress, and, yeah, she has a very, very large house, and in real life her mum lived there as well. They removed the mum for the film they also moved his girlfriend but I was reading that he travelled a lot because of her money and wherever he went he just alienated people and would often convey how frustrated he was that he could never strike up a relationship so I think for the purposes of the film to remove the fact in particular that he had a girlfriend conveys that conveys the fact that he just cannot form a relationship with anyone because he is so awkward when he meets people and he's so uncomfortable in and I mean, yeah, he and, is a misfit. And he's, yeah, he's intense and slightly over-earnest. And he doesn't know how to act. It's one of those things where he doesn't have the emotional intelligence to interact on a, a regular basis. So he certainly doesn't have the emotional intelligence to own a lot of weapons, which he ends up owning. That's the, thing, the film is ultimately an anti-gun film, and it's very clear on that. It is, and it's also one of those things that I thought it was very responsible in terms of how it showed how society at the time was doing everything that you shouldn't do or everything that would trigger someone who was going to go out and do something like that so he became very very obsessed with the Dunblane massacre and of course the reporting on that really focused on the killer and used language that well in the film at least is also directed at Nitram so you think he's seeing some kind of connection there apparently in real life he said that he was going to do not a dumb blame but he did mention to people that he would do things that he would be remembered for and he did talk about going out with guns and things like that it's a film that actually for the most part it doesn't depict and thereby I guess risk glamorising acts of violence it's a film that you know every, all of that kind of happens off screen yeah and yeah I it's one. It's one. Actually, I haven't written my review up of yet because I'm still kind of processing it. And I and, and you have written up your review, and I think it's a good piece. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, it's Justin Kurtzell who last year did uh, True History of the Kelly Gang, which I thought was wonderfully shot. A number of great performances. <laughs> Before that, obviously, it was um, Assassin's Creed. Yes, which he got burnt on because Kurtzell and blockbuster filmmaking do not make good bedfellows. It turns out he's more interesting than that. And. I mean, Assassin's Creed would be a nightmare to make sense of, even in the hands of the most extraordinary and experienced blockbuster filmmaker. And, yeah, I think Justin Kurtzell's just got a more indie sensibility than that. Yeah. And is now back on firmer ground with films like this. Yeah. And it's a good point about the violence. It was one of those, I knew we weren't going to see the massacre because there's no way... I mean, I actually read about it afterwards and thought, well, one, I'm very happy that he didn't try to dramatise that. Two... I don't think you would have been able to dramatise that and keep an audience without misrepresenting or underplaying the horror of it. But he, of course, his debut film was Snowtown, which is also based on a true account. During the 90s in Australia, there was a serial killer who basically went to a very deprived area and hid in plain sight. And that's another film that keeps all the killings off screen, but you still have that sense of dread. I mean, the most terrifying scene in this film is when he goes and buys those guns, because there is an inevitability to it, but also just how easy it is for him to do it. The language of the gun owner when he finds out that uh, Nitram doesn't have a gun license, so he's saying, no, that's fine, that's fine, no drama, no drama. No tears. And it's, no tears, and it's like, 
and then when he says it would be a problem if you were trying to buy a handgun but as you're just buying these semi-automatic weapons and shotguns it's fine we don't need to register them well one of them the AR-15 which is like the gun that's always involved in spree killings that's right it's the uh, the mass shooting killer's weapon of choice isn't it and actually I was quite surprised it's like even in the 90s the AR-15 was being used and 25 odd years later it, oh, it's still really easily available to get in the state and yeah um, but there's also some quite uh, sobering text at the end of this film so yeah so I thought that Nitram was a difficult movie it was um, I thought it tackled a very very difficult subject well so we got on to something a bit lighter yeah um, I guess am I okay to talk a little bit about The Lost Order please do which is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal. She adapted it from the book by Lena Ferrante, and it stars Olivia Colman as this um, literary academic who goes on holiday to Greece and uh, kind of basically ends up in a bit of a confrontation with an Italian-American family, and they've got a little girl who, who, van- who disappears, you know, only temporarily, but it kind of sets off the Olivia Colman character who's played, called, called Leda, as an, uh, and the Swan, um, into sort of thinking about her, her own relationship with her kids and her own kind of history, and she's played by Jessie Buckley in Flashback. I mean, Olivia Colman's great. She's got, you know, she's got that wonderful transparency in terms... Of, like, she can play a character who's quite guarded, but you just catch flashes of, like, the true you know what she's thinking and and the film is you know wonderfully matter of fact in terms of depicting personal failings and insecurities and but Jessie Buckley in particular is superb I don't know how closely she worked with Olivia Colman but you see her giving a performance which has mannerisms that are Olivia Colman's mannerisms in a way that doesn't feel studied that feels completely organic and you know I wouldn't be surprised to see both of them getting Oscar noms for it Wow, okay. Yeah, quite possibly. It's also got Dakota Johnson, who's really good in a supporting role as, as like, the mum, who's sort of dealing with some of her own issues. It's got um, Ed Harris. Right. Who, you know, plays, like, the local handyman who's been hanging out there for years. It's got, for the second time in this festival, Jack Farthing, who played Prince Charles in um, Spencer, who I totally didn't recognise here, who plays her husband in flashbacks. right. Because he looks like a living, breathing human being. Yes, not like a waxwork of uh, someone utterly privileged and utterly yeah. uh, miserable as he was in Spencer. And yeah, I say there's a wonderful matter of factness to it. It's just a really clever, insightful film. I was incredibly impressed by it. It'll definitely be it's one of my films of the festival. Okay. Great. Um, well, I'm going to have to tell you quickly about Dashcam. So Dashcam is directed by Rob Savage. He left to fame last year with Host, the Zoom lockdown horror movie that was on Shudder and really became a zeitgeist moment movie. Uh, so Dashcam is his first film that he made for Blumhouse, so after Host he was snapped up by Blumhouse, and it is wild. It's funny because I... Th- Have you seen Host yet? Yes, yeah. Because I thought that Host was one of those films where even though it's very scary and it can get quite bloody, it still has a feel that... The whole family can get round and have a good scare, I'd say, if the kids are 13 and upwards. It's got a particularly good scare, I remember, involving a virtual background. Yeah, that's really, really well done. Well, Dashcam is a film that is... It's, it's a surprising film for a second movie made under the Blumhouse banner because it's like... It is caustic. It is a caustic movie. So it's basically... It's based around this shock vlogger influencer called Annie Hardy, played by a shock vlogger influencer called Annie Hardy and in real life and in the film she has a dash car which is basically her driving around LA ad-libbing these raps to keywords that are given to her by viewers in the comments field 
So she is doing this at the beginning. She's uh, a COVID denier, anti-vaxxer, uh, MAGA supporter. And she decides she's had enough of the state, so moves to London and hooks up with an old bandmate of hers. She soon outstays her welcome, so uh, has to go. So she nicks his car, and then she accepts a lot of money to drive this person called Angela home. And I'm not going to say anything more about it, but it just it just turns wild. It just turns wild. And the whole thing, again, is like a found footage. It's all shot from her phone. She has a contraption that she wears as a hat that basically films what she sees. And I kind of hesitate to call it a film in some ways, because without end credits, it's 66 minutes long. And it knows... Sorry, go on. Well, I say I saw a film today not a dissimilar length to that. I'm actually getting quite glad because I saw quite a few films at Fright Fest this year that came in around 75 minutes. And it's like, yeah, I'm kind of liking this as a length now because you get so many films that are well over two hours. But it's one of those films where it kind of guesses that you've seen a lot of found footage films. So therefore it knows that it can just drop the plot points in the background and you're able to pick it up. While in the foreground, there is just absolute mayhem going on. And because it has a lo-fi look to it, the really quite amazing effects that are in there have that kind of Cloverfield feel where like you're not expecting to see something so amazing because it looks quite low budget some of the stuff in there is absolutely brilliant it really delivers as a horror film it's actually very funny it knows exactly how to stage a gag and then have a scare behind it or vice versa it went down really well with the audience i saw it yeah they were just howling it is utterly outrageous as we said annie hardy is great she's just a monster yeah, like I really say, I was about to say playing what seems to be a really sympathetic character who you want only good things to happen to yeah, but that's right she is a real monster but she just does have this charisma to her but it is nice to see her get put through the ringer and um, so it's yeah it's I mean it'll be fascinating to see what Savage does next because I think he's probably got one more film in him like this before he then has to prove that he can tell a proper story but as an experiential horror film goes I would strongly recommend Dashcam if you are the kind of person that doesn't mind a lot of scattered logical caustic humor as well and some it has to be said outrageous gore but uh, yes that's dash cam i guess yeah just touching quickly uh, yesterday on the complete opposite end of the scale i saw the new terence davis film benediction yeah which is about siegfried sassoon which uh, you saw as i was watching dash cam so we were having very different experiences again yeah it's also about twice the length of dash cam and uh siegfried sassoon is played by uh, jack loud who I guess maybe you know most recently I'm definitely forgetting he's definitely been in something since then but he's in he's the young pilot in Dunkirk yeah he's the guy that has to ditch his spitfire in the sea and then almost can't get out and then gets rescued yes and here he plays you know Siegfried Sassoon and it's if you've ever read the Resurrection Trilogy by Pat Barker you'll kind of know the, the broad strokes of what it's about it starts with fighting on the front his brother's killed he turns against the war and ends up getting put in a sanatorium this is in World War One. this is during World War One, essentially because they don't want to court martial him because they'll make a martyr of him right. and yeah, it's a really nice sort of insightful piece about like who this guy was, what his thoughts were on war. It's got a great supporting cast. It's got um, Ben Daniels. It's got um, Julian. Oh, not Glover, not Bleach. It will come back to me. Sands, Julian Sands. Oh, right, okay. And it's odd because it's got like the big parts of that almost have a multimedia feel to it because it's got his poet. He's narrating his poetry over footage and images of World War One. As archive footage. Over archive footage, yeah. And um, Secret Sassoon was gay. And at a certain point, it kind of turns into bright young things because it's him kind of palling around with Ivan Novello, with whom he has an affair, and sort of various other men, and you know what society thought of that, and you know, and he's still obviously dealing with his trauma from the war. And then after a certain point, like it's, it has an amazing shot where 
uh, basically the camera sort of pans around Jack Loudon and he turns almost imperceptibly into Peter Capaldi. I love Peter Capaldi, but he doesn't quite convince in this because partly I think he's trying really hard to hide his Scottish accent. His voice is very deep. Right. and resonant in a way that feels like he doesn't feel like he could quite capture the t- convincingly capture the timbre of Jack Loudon's sort of incarnation and also it's very difficult to believe that even like you know unless he was grimacing for 30 years Jack Loudon has not turned into Peter Capaldi though it does end with a scene that comes about as close as I think it can to convincing you of that okay. and essentially he's become this really sort of bitter dried up man who's been had to swallow all this stuff over so many years and it's it's a long film and some parts of it are absolutely exquisite as a complete contrast to that, talking about the shorter film I saw today it was Petite Maman by um, Celine Schiama who did Portrait of a Lady on Fire Yeah. and it's basically it's not a major like a known cast but it's basically about this little girl who goes with her mum and dad to kind of clear out the house of her grandmother who's just died wanders into the woods at a play and meets her mother as a child Okay. And essentially, it's a time travel film, but it's done as magical realist, but kind of with emphasis on the realism. Like you just never, it, she understands the dynamic of it, but it never quite comments on how it's happening. I need to look up the two actors who play the two young girls, her and her mother, yeah. because they look like their sisters. I'll be very surprised if they weren't actually related. Right. It's quite light in terms of, for a film that does you know touch on death, but there are, there are certain just details of you know the, the grandmother's house and certain other aspects that really like you know I think will probably be very familiar to you know anybody who it's good stuff like they've got a barometer on the wall and I'm yeah. sure there's like there's the whole generation who will have grown up seeing a barometer on the wall of their grandparents house yeah. and I think it's a really nice neat nice touching uh, understated humanist film and it's about comes back in about 70 minutes that's interesting because that plot sounds very very similar to a film that I saw at the LFF maybe 2018 we move around a bit. <laughs> I think we're getting some London nightlife now. It's about half a six. Yeah, it's very, very similar, that story, to a Japanese animated film that I saw back in 2018 called Mirai, which is by Hosodo Mamoru, I think his name is. And that film is very similar. It's about this girl who has a very fractious relationship with her mum. She makes friends with someone, but it turns out to be her mum was a kid. And Mirai means future, but I think it's also the name of the main girl in it. So that's really interesting that that sounds like a very, very similar plot. Yes, the two young girls who star in it are Josephine Sans and Gabrielle Sans, which leads me to believe that, yes, they are they are probably related. Well, that's pretty good casting then. Well, shall we get on to Benedetta and stay with French cinema? Yes, getting on to Benedetta is the new Paul Verhoeven film, the one that's kind of been tacitly marketed as the Horny Nuns film. Horny Nuns film. Nunsploitation, a genre that I have to admit I like very much. <laughs> I do like a good nunsploitation film. They go from high art, like The Devils, to um, kind of low art. Well, not low art, but exploitation. No, no art's a word for it. Exploitation like um, A Killer Nun, the Anita Ekberg film. Could you do the honours and call up the cast list? And I will give the synopsis of this one. So this one is about a young girl. Well, we meet her as a child, Benedetta. She is taken to, we're led to believe, quite an exclusive convent that is almost like a um, a desirable school in a very good catchment area, but you have to pay a dowry to get in. As an adult, she is played by... Virginie Efira. Virginie Efira. Efira. So she is someone who is very, very pious. She has these visions of Christ. Another woman, um, Bartolomea, played by Daphne Patakia. So she bursts into the convent one day. Her dad is trying to uh, to kill her, and she's accepted into the convent as well. It kind of suggests that she is the, she unlocks something within Benedetta, 
i.e. a sexual awakening. But there's so much more to it than it just being a lesbian nun film. It's a film about the Catholic Church. It's a film about faith and the manipulation of faith. The way that this nunnery is, oh, this convent is um, ultimately controlled by men, but feminine wiles and how they can um, sometimes work within the system. Yeah, it's a film that I preferred in the second half to the first because the first half is more the kind of the setup and I. Uh, but then when it gets into further on, I found it was actually asking really interesting questions because, you know, she performs certain miracles and to what extent are they real? Are they not real? If they aren't real, is she doing them because she's a manipulator? Is she doing it because she genuinely believes in this? I think the film has a pretty definite take on the miraculous. Just going to wait for this. Um, it is a handicap thing. Playing um, thriller. Playing thriller. Like, we're not going to be able to monetize this one, are we? No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like, what well, no, that's just background recording. I'm sorry, that was there on the day. I think the film has its mind made up on the miraculous elements. I think there's a really, really interesting line of ambiguity in what are the motivations behind the Benedetta character and what is she doing this for? She's very clever. It's also very funny. I mean, it's a Paul Verhoeven film. He is someone who... I mean, we're going to miss him when he's gone. He does not give a fuck about good taste. And actually, this film is... I I, I watched Robocop last night by complete coincidence. He's a filmmaker who will tell a good story. And I think that his films, apart from Basic Instinct, which is shit, um, and actually Showgirls, which isn't very good either. But apart from that, I think his films are populated with very interesting characters. And this film, I thought, they were very human characters. And their motivations were very human. And yes, there are some lesbian sex scenes in this, but I actually thought they were justified by the film and they didn't seem exploitative to me and, I mean, and actually they seemed really it was an expression of love I thought yeah and it's, it's a film where people pass through different spheres of antagonism there's the character of the abbess played by Charlotte Rampling there's the nuncio played by Lambert Wilson and it ends up being almost being a bit of a tragedy because you kind of understand how everybody's ended up in these positions even though no like apart from the, the nuncio there's nobody there's None of the nuns are villains. No, that was the good thing. Is all of the women are trapped by? Well, I mean, I think I think that one of the nuns says you are trapped by your body. You have to do everything to kind of not feel comfortable in your skin because that's what's going to betray you. Whereas the men realise this is a boys' club and they can pretty much do whatever they want and they can game the system to advance in a way that the women never can. It's a film I actually got on with more than I was expecting to, to be honest. I also like the fact that Paul Verhoeven just makes very flavourful movies. I mean, you can't say he makes dull movies. This is fine. If we're in a bit of an alcove street, see if we can be a bit quieter. Uh, Yeah, just say that. It's actually quite perfume, which makes me a even more concerned. That's right, yes. (laughs) Actually, that just assaulted the back of my throat. I think I'm actually tasting someone else's piss. Welcome what to is London, folks. Is this a Paul Verhoeven movie? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, it will get a big laugh if this was a film and um, because Benedetta got some really, really good laughs. There are visions that she has that I think are a reference to Ken Russell's The Devils, but in Ken Russell's The Devils, they're portrayed as very, very disturbing, very hallucinogenic, whereas here they are played for broad laughs. Yeah, Camp Jesus wielding a sword wielding a very, very phallic sword, coming to Benedetta's rescue and waving his big sword around. It's like, I'm sorry, but this is glorious. But shall we go on to a film that I just thought, yeah, I'll go and see it because I like Will Smith. Story sounds pretty good, um, but I wasn't, I was here nor there about it and absolutely loved it. 
King Richard. Yeah, um, it essentially is about the Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, who's this really, you know, they grew up in Compton, and he was this guy who had decided basically before they were born they were going to be tennis players. He'd written like a 70-page plan, and he had hid it to the letter. So he had Serena and, William, Serena and Venus take them to like the local tennis court in like not great area of town. Every night, rain or shine, often in the rain, just to test out that how the balls are in the wet. Yeah. Um, what, five kids, I think, all of whom were excelling academically. His wife, uh, Oracine, played by uh, Andranu Ellis, basically them being this family unit. It's a wonderful character role for Will Smith because he's playing the kind of devoted dad. You know, he didn't have pursuit of happiness, etc. But he's a real... He, Richard Williams is obviously a really, real eccentric. He's incredibly stubborn. He's incredibly outspoken. So, you know, he's got a very particular way that he's going to do things and he doesn't care about how the establishment want to do things. And it's, you know, the film starts off by being like, you, you're never in doubt about Venus and Serena's talent because obviously in real life it's been proven that, you know, I'm not a tennis fan and I know they are definitely two of the greatest players, if not the greatest tennis players of all time. So the film becomes kind of about access. How do they get access to a coach? How do they get access to an agent? How do they find their way in? Absolutely. It's one of those films that I thought, to be honest, at the beginning of the film I wrote down in my notes a TV movie. It just seemed to have a TV movie feel. But it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sorry, but by the end of the film, and it's a two-hour and 18-minute movie, and it did not seem like that. It just flew by. the end of the film, I thought two things. One, I'm going to call it now, Will Smith is going to win an Oscar for that film. He is going to win the Oscar for Best Actor for that role. I mean, it's a very, very good Oscar role in terms of its triumph against adversity. It's a dig down deep to do right by his family. He's flawed. There are things where he is seeming to jeopardise what he's trying to achieve. Sometimes he's a very, very prickly character. He has a couple of Oscar scenes. There's one scene with his wife quite late in the movie. There's another scene with Venus Williams the night before the biggest match of her life. And I have to admit, I thought, well, you've got two great Oscar scenes here that they will play at the award show. And I'm a bit choked up by both of them. This film has really, really got to me. And it's produced by the Williams sisters. So Serena and Venus Williams are producers on this film, as is, I think, Will Smith and his wife and his kids. So it's going to, I would imagine, be quite a sanitised film. I'm sure there are certain things that have been missed out. But I thought, this is a wonderful peon to parenting. It's a wonderful peon to encouraging your kids, but also being aware of how you could break your kids by trying to make them achieve your dreams. It's funny, it has so much heart, it's really quite exciting and also it's one of those where it's like it is awkward when he's going to the posh country clubs trying to get them sponsorship and trying to get them a coach they are made to look out of place in this incredibly white world that they're walking into um yeah the character of richard like you know he's he's cracking jokes he's clearly like he's not going to let himself be put on the back foot and it's got also got two really good supporting performances by sinea sydney and demi singleton as venus and serena yeah who, they are great yeah, it's a film that I, when it started off, I was like, oh, is this going to be a hagiography? Is this going to be a film that's going to be, you know, that might as well be called Saint Richard? Yeah. But it's not, because it does kind of dig into, initially it kind of plays him as, this, he's, he's, he's eccentric, he's difficult, but he's really supportive, he really cares about the girls, he's doing everything for them. And then it kind of goes, well, actually, was this at all self-serving? He wasn't the perfect man in his personal life. And it does kind of, there might be more of that but it had enough in there to make me feel yeah this is actually a film that is inter really interested in as a character yeah. instead of just making him out to be 
say Richard. Yeah. Now a couple of other things there. There was um, well, one you said it was a very interesting film, and in that it doesn't really have an antagonist. The antagonist is basically the society that is not going to let them just walk into a country club and start playing tennis, even though they're incredibly able. It's one of those things where it's like they have to prove themselves again and again and again. But it was refreshing not to have an antagonist in there. Um, it, it's got a couple of re- more nice supporting performances. Tony Goldwyn as one of their as one of their trainers. Uh, John Bernthal's great. John Bernthal's great in everything he turns up in because he's got such such exasperation with Richard. You know, wanting to do things his own way, even if it's not the way it's ever been done. And just there's one scene in particular where something doesn't happen. And then there's an additional, like, insult to injury. <laughs> and it was great. Tony Goldwyn is just a very, very watchable actor. And I think he's most famous, you were saying, for playing the president from Scandal. He is just great as their coach. John Bernthal, I was so happy when he turned up. Because I had no idea that he was in this film. I didn't really look at the film. Because I just wasn't really interested in the film until I sat down and started watching it. And it completely won me over. And, but And the thing is, he's great in everything he's in. Like, probably his biggest role today is probably still The Punisher. In the but that's, series. But that's but he's, a he's also in Le Mans 66, for uh, V Ferrari. And he's great in that as well. He is, but that's the thing. Even though he's... He doesn't always play toughs. He is a guy who is known because he's so good at playing a tough guy and he looks hard. It's always nice to see him play someone who isn't tough. And actually, in this film, he's not a doormat, but he's just a really, really good-natured guy. But he's a guy who's not a doormat and is being treated like a doormat and doesn't quite know how to respond to it. That's right. But he knows that he's got something really special. I mean, I think there's a scene where someone says, you're basically telling me that you've got two Mozarts in your house right now and later the Bernthal character just realises that's what he's got so he can't let this go because these girls are going to do so well and they're going to achieve so much but he's having to work and he's having to work with and sometimes against Richard to achieve it yeah there's a scene where he's uh, prompted to say something uncharitable and almost despite himself so he says something that is absolutely true but Richard comes back with no now come on you're better than that. <laughs> like, that is just a checkmate move. I want to use that in conversation. Whenever anyone uh, brings me up on something, I'm just going to say, oh, come on, you're better than that. Because I just think that's going to win every argument. <laughs> it's a bulletproof defence, because it's like, come on now, let's, you know. You're better, than, you're that. better than that. Yeah, also the fact that what we know about sport, you can write on the back of a postage stamp. So we had no idea how this film was going to end. It, it doesn't show them as adults, but it does end on a very, very big match, and neither of us knew how this, how, how this match ended. I think, yeah, on the whole, my not knowing anything about sport, it's, it's not going to do me any favours in a pub quiz, but it doesn't mean I get more dramatic enjoyment, possibly, out of movies like this. Yeah. And, and it's great, and it's, you know, to talk a little bit about, it's directed by... Um, Actually, before you say that, it's also one of those films, I think the reason that it succeeds is because it's unlike Apollo 13, most people watching Apollo 13, particularly when it came out, knew how it ended. It didn't stop you really being involved in the drama of the movie. And watching this film, as you said, we know that they go on to huge success and fame, but that doesn't get in the way of the drama. It's the journey that they take that is the really interesting thing. And um, yeah, I thought, well, that's the reason why this film works so well, is because we know the ending, but we are absolutely invested in what they're doing. You say it's directed by a guy called Ronaldo Marcus Green, who I don't think looking at his filmography uh, there's nothing I've really seen by him he did a film called Monsters and Men back in 2018 he did one called Joe Bell which uh, last year it's also written by a screenwriter called Zach Balin who all I know about him is that he's just been signed to write Creed 3 for that reason because it wasn't directed by anyone big it's got Will Smith in it but it's 
to be honest, Will Smith's track record with dramas has been not great. Yeah. Seven pounds, anyone? I mean, and Ali gets a name check in this, and obviously Ali was, and it's interesting that you know that was kind of that was one of his first big Oscar shouts, the yeah. for, play, for it being that in Michael Mann's Ali, and that he's now unless I don't know unless Denzel Washington gives a performance of his of a lifetime in Tragedy and Macbeth, which you know he may well do. Um, He's going to probably win it for playing the parent to the greatest of all time. Yeah, and I'm going to call it now. I, I'm just going to say he's going to be holding the statue next Feb or April, whenever it's going to be. Because, yeah, he was, he was so good. And one more thing. It was one of those things where, like the Battle of the Sexes, the Emma Stone-Steve Carell movie, you suddenly realise you are watching the actors play tennis in a way that they can't possibly be playing tennis. They are playing world-class tennis, but the CGI... Like in Battle of the Sexes, is so good that you cannot see the joins. But you think, well, as good as that young girl is playing Venus Williams, and also Serena Williams as well, they both give amazing performances, they can't play that level of tennis. The sound design does a lot of really good work in terms of the wumps and stuff. But. I'm sorry, if Steve Carell and Emma Stone could play that level of tennis in Battle of the Sexes, you know, I think... I think <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was a great moment in that film, which I also really liked, was that you're watching it and it's like, Anna said, they can't possibly be doing this. This is the best tennis that is being played right now. They can't be doing it, but I can't see the joins. These are invisible effects. This is amazing. So, yeah, so actually, King Richard has just kind of come out of nowhere to be... It's going to be, I think, high up on my top ten. I mean, this hasn't been a banner LFF, I don't think, but... But today made a good effort. Yeah, and what a lovely movie it was. It really, I just thought, good. I'm really glad it's been a really lovely movie. And I think it could be a PG as well, which is good, because I, I think this is a film that the whole family will enjoy. There's a really, really funny bit where they all sit down to watch Cinderella and then have a Q&A afterwards. I won't spoil it anymore, but it's just really funny. Yeah, great movie. Agreed. And so, yeah, I think that's it until Tragedy of Macbeth. Absolutely. Cheers, guys. Hello again. Rob D here once more to give you the plugs. If you like that, then why not leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you could even tell a friend to check us out if you think that they might like the show. If you want to follow Rob Wallace on Twitter, he's at Robert M. Wallace. For his rather splendid writings, go to ofallthefilmsites.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. We also have a sister podcast, Another Time McLeod, which goes through the 1986 classic Highlander, minute by minute-ish. You can hear that wherever you listen to this podcast. It's also on Twitter at McLeodTime. If you have any Highlander thoughts and want to email them to us, you can do so at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. So, thanks very much for listening. And we'll speak to you again very, very soon. <laughs> it's just a man. Only another man.